They're coming. Now we'll see how these Russians deal with a crack SS division. Uh, hands. Have courage, my friend. Yeah. Uh, hands, I've just noticed something. These communists are all cowards. Have you looked at our caps recently? Our caps? The badges on our caps. Have you looked at them? What? No. A bit? They've got skulls on them. Have you noticed that our caps have actually got little pictures of skulls on them? I don't, uh... Hands. Are we the baddies? Greetings, salutations, and just maybe, hello, you know, depending on how you feel today. Welcome to Remedial Polymath. If this isn't your first time, welcome back. If it is, well, you might have just found your fourth favorite podcast. After the last two exhaustive episodes in which we examine the painful state of fishing, seafood, and the oceans in our today and now, it's time for something a bit less miserable. That being said, it's not a fun topic but I believe it isn't as depressing because at least it isn't a scary issue of the present moment. We shall instead peer into the past. It isn't a history that is scary as much as it is, well, unusually hair-raisingly perilous on a global scale. Maybe that's a better term. At least that's how many people must have felt at the time, and probably still should if history does indeed rhyme as Mark Twain opined but we have not gathered today for that discussion. We're here to examine a guy from the past whose name you probably know, but I doubt you could tell me much about him outside of some Jeopardy-level information, the cheap questions, mind you. Worry not. I am a self-proclaimed history nut who fancies himself well-versed on this time period, and I didn't know too much either. Just the highlights and maybe a sprinkling of some other, hey, did you know, tidbits. There are probably reasons for this, but more on that later. Benito Amicare Andrea Mussolini. I bet you recognize the last name. He was the fascist prime minister of Italy from 1922 until 1943. He and his movement is what we're going to inspect. Well, not just him. We'll also discuss his bizarre similarity with and effects upon another guy whose last name I know you'll recognize. And it won't just be an examination of one man's strange parallels and impact upon another. Because this impact was an essential and oft undiscussed ingredient that helped lead humans into the most horrific, haunting, and death-filled era we have ever created for one another. Hmm. I might have to reconsider that whole non-miserable descriptive. For this episode, we'll take things up to World War II because everything takes a distinct turn after that conflict officially begins. That'll be our next episode, and it will have more levity. A short explication. 
Part of the reason I initially hinted that this topic may be more upbeat or at least less depressing than the last is because I always found it fascinating how, when I learned about the demise of the Third Reich, just how much this bald, gesticulating little Italian fellow had really cost the Germans militarily. So that was the fun part in my mind. He may have been some kind of macabre genius in getting himself into power and after that expanding it, but when quote-unquote the big one started, he was a real useless pain in the ass. More than that, his hubristic idiocy truly helped the Allies win the war, specifically the USSR, but that incredible distraction in turn greatly assisted the US and Great Britain. I find that an overlooked and absorbing part of history. But as I researched and wrote, wrote and researched, I was drawn into other aspects of the pre-war story of these two people and their peoples, and how much Mussolini and Italy truly were the Mediterranean pre-version of the rise to power of that other gesticulating, undersized fascist and his buddies. Except the Italian version happened before the Aryan one, their stories were so similar and one's effect upon the other so distinct and again, undiscussed, that I had to split this episode, uh, this topic into two episodes, trying to weave all this information, which is worthy of conveying, to back a single thesis seemed unproductive, if even achievable. So, why is this topic interesting? For a few reasons, really. One, we all like to imagine we know the basics of how this war and its main antagonist, Adolf Hitler, came to be. Two, we like to think we understand Italy's involvement in the pre-war years, i.e. it wasn't that important. They were bad guys light, just like Romania and Hungary would become. They were second fiddle in the fascist world. Third, it's interesting because the first two points I just laid out are wonderfully incorrect understandings of the past, even for those who consider themselves somewhat decent understanders of the most significant and most extensive war to ever grace our planet. What is also interesting is how much Mussolini and Italy get some kind of historical pass? Amnesia might be a better word. Why aren't the exploits of Benito and his influence on that other important regime discussed more? And and that's a regime that is talked about to no end. We shall explore. While they had their differences in what they thought fascism should be, um, it's simply outright bizarre how much Benito and Adolf had in common and how much Benito paved the road for his eventually more powerful political brethren from the North to follow. Once the facts are examined, it becomes clear that the history of the Nazis would be very different had Mussolini not outlined this path for them to take, outlined what was possible, and kind of how to get away with it all. The Nazis were not the wicked single-off abnormality we seem to remember them as. It is ridiculous how little we collectively comprehend and reflect upon this. What does that say about us? It is truly worth analyzing and understanding. So, welcome to episode 6 of Remedial Polymath and part 1 of our exploration of Benito Mussolini. Let's move forward. Andiamo avanti!
Before we dive into the episode, I have to do some shameless promotion of the show. Whatever podcast app you're using, could you please go to the show and rate it, subscribe, or review it? That would really help out and just cost you like five seconds of your time. You can go to remedialpolymath.com if you prefer to read any of these episodes. I write them all first. You can check the references. You can contact me at admin at remedialpolymath.com if you'd like. And I have a Patreon. Just search for Remedial Polymath. Uh, You can support the show directly that way. I would truly love that. I would still like to communicate with anyone who's listening and come up with some ideas for the Patreon, whether that be being able to suggest show topics, do AMAs, um, and I definitely want to offer up the songs for download as well. I create a unique one for each episode. So thank you very much for listening, and um, I hope you can support the show in any way you can. Okay, now let's get to it. Like most things involving World War II, it is best to start with World War I. We ought to review and explain Italy's overall involvement in that conflict first. We will just have a refresher to remember the larger points that we can focus on the little ones in a better light. How Italy found itself in both conflicts and on which side they decided to throw their lot in with is peculiar. With the right eyes, it is almost comical, if one can forget that these are world wars we're discussing. The Great War. The War to End All Wars. The War of the Nations. The First World War began in July of 1914. At that time, prior to things kicking off, Italy was a partner in the Triple Alliance with Germany and Austria-Hungary. However, they decided to remain neutral when the Kinetic Conflict began. Um, How a nation joins an alliance before a massive brawl but opts to sit things out when the actual fighting begins is beyond me. It reminds me of a joke I once heard concerning people fighting in uniforms, but I can't remember the rest. Regardless, the Italian public and political factions within it um, eventually felt they should join the fight. They didn't like sitting out this quote-unquote great war and were confused by their alliance with Austria-Hungary, their historical enemy. Plus, they were excited by the possibility of expanding their country by obtaining more lands for themselves in the Alps and the Adriatic Sea, claiming these areas should be theirs because the people within them were primarily Italian speakers. Vladimir Putin is a current admirer of such language-based arguments for conquering and violence. If anything is certain, European nations throughout their lengthy histories often had their eyes on expansion and weren't afraid to realize that desire through brutality. This war was no different, even if the barbarity was. America held the same desire throughout its history, do not doubt that. It just frequently came through negotiation. Thank you, Napoleon and Tsar Alexander II. When it came to war to settle the issue, which it often did, the Americans' conflicts were orders of magnitude smaller. Not to mention, the American time frame was a couple orders of magnitude shorter, so there have been a whole lot fewer of these expansionary conflicts. I relate all that to express why Italy saw more sense in switching sides. Their honor be damned. 
they decided to deviate from their promises officially, or not officially, you could say, in a secret pact with Great Britain and France in 1915 called the Pact of London, in which they were promised the frontier lands just mentioned. So Italy, interesting enough, turned its back on Germany in World War I in secret. What's also interesting is how few people know this. Ask those around you about the history of Italy's involvement in World War I. I doubt you'll get many correct answers, especially in America. Um, as to why, the, why Germany didn't hold this against them later with all this European whining about the past to excuse your present actions, I'm, I'm not sure anyone has that answer. But of course, the secrecy couldn't last long. Germany would eventually realize what's up. Another intriguing point is that Italy only had an army of, well, less than 300,000 people at the war's onset. It would subsequently balloon to over 5 million. Despite suffering 460,000 deaths and 955,000 injuries, their contributions seem slightly forgotten compared to other nations in this war. Part of that probably stems from their switching sides, many military setbacks, and a general focus on the Western European nations, especially in the English-speaking world. It doesn't help that the manner of their involvement in World War II takes precedent when looking backward you know, in the current age, because we focus on the more significant and more recent conflict, and their switching uh, of allegiances remains somewhat peculiar to us nowadays. But hey, maybe this information will help be helpful when watching Jeopardy one day. All right, now it is time to examine our main characters. What follows is some of the information that convinced me I needed to separate this topic into two episodes, as there is, oh, oh so much we can talk about before we speak of, quote unquote, the good one. And yes, that is actually a name used for World War II. Enter Benito Mussolini. The story of Mussolini is quite compelling. Even the early stuff is comparable to Hitler's. And while he is only six years older, things just seem to have moved faster for him post-World War I. Uh, he also was never a failed art student, nor was he imprisoned for a failed coup before coming to power. Although, should Benito have attempted to quickly rise to power through a failed drunken gathering at an Italian vineyard, as Adolf did at his Munich beer hall pooch? Well, that's just a movie I'd like to see. Hitler had a good bit of struggle after the war that Mussolini didn't experience. This is part of the reason why Adolf's timeline is a bit behind Benito's. Although, to Adolf, that may have been a blessing more than a curse. For everyone else, it most certainly was a curse. Either way, they both did experience similar failures of the heart and mind after their challenging ventures in World War I. When will we learn that the experience of war, as horrific and off-putting as it is to a man, only seems to assure more war for men in one way or another? This is not to say war isn't necessary sometimes, and certainly is. It just seems to find a way to guarantee itself into the future through being allowed to exist in the present. The war to end all wars, indeed. All right, enough pontificating. Back to the odd warographies. Yes, I made up that word, and I like it. Mussolini 
enlisted in the Italian army in 1915. He fought as a sharpshooter and was a corporal. He became wounded and was discharged in 1917 due to his injury. As the war neared its close, Benito came home a devout anti-socialist. Even though Italy was a part of the winning side in World War I, he still felt his country was gypped because he wanted more territorial expansion in the treaty, and he felt uh, more should have been provided for his country's eventual uh, economic difficulties post-war. Basically, he thought that socialism just did not adequately address the national unity and strength he felt Italy should have after this massive war um, that they were on the winning sides of. He was furious. He desired something politically novel that emphasized authoritarianism and nationalism and was the anti-current political thinking of the day, um, namely socialism. He genuinely thought he had stumbled upon some kind of new political idea. The specifics of that political idea of the time, you know, may have changed, but little else was a revolution, yet he thought it was. We can see now that the only thing untried was the name. Let's compare that World War I story to Adolf's. Adolf enlisted in the German army in 1915, within a year of Benito's enlistment. He would serve in the Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment and became a corporal as well. He was wounded twice and earned himself the Iron Cross, which readers about the Third Reich might recall was something he would never forget to sport in public as much as he could. Unlike Italy, Germany lost the war. And he, like many of his countrymen, considered the Treaty of Versailles not only a mistake, but a betrayal. Mostly because few of the actual mil- few knew of the actual military situation on the ground except the generals who agreed to the treaty. Because of this, post-war, he believed strongly in extreme nationalism and anti-socialism. Of course, he also threw in vehement anti-Semitism because, in his twisted mind, Druze were somehow to blame for Germany's loss and the treaty and the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. Um, he placed a lot of the blame on socialists as well. Hence, after the war, he joined the political group he felt most aligned with, the German Workers' Party, which becomes DAP from the translation. Um, this would later become the National Socialist Workers' Party, the NSDAP but we all know this as the Nazis. Isn't it interesting that the word socialist is in the name? It's like some kind of sick ruse. Kind of like how North Korea and Lao put Democratic Republic in their country's name. Okay, guys. Now, a whole lot of people enlisted to serve in World War I. Many of them were wounded as corporals, one imagines. I haven't looked into it, but I doubt it's a stress to think those corporals came home pissed off at most everything, including how their countries handled things and the political structure of the day. Apparently, even those on the winning side. Yet it tilts your head a bit when the warographies of the two primary European troublemakers of the next war of worlds just sound so similar. While those parallels are interesting, they are not the similarity of experiences that matters most. Mussolini, Mussolini, I'm trying to pronounce that right, Mussolini and Hitler both came home feeling an unfamiliar and gripping sensation that most didn't return with, if any. Both felt that he was a man of fate with a set destiny to lead their country into greatness, a greatness that started with revenge for the unfairness of the Treaty of Versailles. 
There is no good answer as to why these men came home with such similar illusions of grandeur. Usually, corporals, corporals who held no positions of interest or power before a war don't come home thinking after minor, minor roles in said war, one on the losing side and one on the winning, after injuries, they don't come home thinking that Providence had selected them to lead their people to greatness and were given some kind of divine hall pass to use mass violence in conquering and subjugating others in the fulfillment of this choosing from on high. Often, people come home scared and traumatized and never want to pick up a weapon for war again. <clears throat> Maybe they didn't see enough combat, but that's doubtful. Maybe their injuries somehow influenced this, but that also just doesn't compute. Perhaps a lot of people came back like this, but we never heard from them. That makes more sense. But then so why did we hear from these two? Why were they so successful? Because they yelled shit really well? <laughs> Probably it's just fucking bizarre and sad and scary. They somehow accidentally were right for... They were right and ready for their times and their places. Although no one would be ready for them. All right, let us return to exploring Benito's political story, which, as mentioned before, unfolded at a good clip faster than his hereafter hun homeboy. That's Adolf, by the way. I figured it was worthy alliteration. Even before the war ended, Benito started advocating for a dictator to anyone who would listen. He believed the best thing for Italy was, quote, a man who is ruthless and energetic enough to make a clean sweep, end quote. He believed this was the path to lifting the Italian population from their economic and political crisis. One had to assume this was also partly a side effect of his uber-admiration of the Roman Empire, which once controlled a massive territory from his country's capital. Soon after, he began giving public speeches suggesting he had himself in mind for the position. What happened is very interesting. Early on, he gave a speech in Milan to people with all sorts of political leanings, relatively quickly post-war. But here's the thing they proved open to joining his nascent movement. In this speech, he outlined what kind of political system he was trying to create. I bet you can think of the name of this system. You see, in the Roman Empire, some lictors, who are functionaries who would attend magistrates in public, they would walk along with the dictator and other chief magistrates with a set of sticks all bound up into one larger object of sorts. The symbolism was that each stick was easily broken, but when bound up, it was very strong. These objects were called faces, F-A-S-C-E-S. -E I'm not sure on the pronunciation. Fasces, probably fasces, fasces. Mussolini liked this symbolism, so he called those in his fighting force fasci di combattimento or fighting bands in English. Hence, he and us now called this political movement fascism with the fasces as its symbol. Don't you just adore weird little anecdotes like that? Of course, 
Had the passage of time progressed differently, one could see socialists claiming the same representation for their movement, and I doubt many would object to the vague symbolism. But socialism appeared first and went a different route symbolically. The Soviet Union ended up putting a hammer and sickle upon blood red for their movement and country. They apparently wanted the world to know that they grow food and make stuff as well, while possessing blood in their veins. I kid, but as I related earlier, it's continually outlandish how political leaders come along and believe they have found for themselves something novel or unique. Be aware of that, history seems to tell us. Hungry for another weird anecdote? Here you go. It seems that Mussolini, Mussolini, who, by the way, was an ardent socialist pre-war, but that's not this story, he got his political start in 1917 after being discharged due to injury by working as a journalist. This was while the war was still happening, yet after it became clear that Russia had to leave the conflict due to their own little internal altercation concerning socialism. In case you didn't know, they descended into a civil war that would end the rule of the Tsars and put them on a path towards the USSR. In part because of that, Benito's aim was to publish pro-war propaganda so that Italy would stay in the fight and not back out like the Ruskis did. He wrote for Il Popolo d'Italia out of Milan. Apparently, he would also send Italian army veterans to beat up those who wanted Italy out of the war. Unfortunately, this would prove to be a dry run for what he would do later with his fascist blackshirt units. Stay tuned for more on that. The Guardian, which is a prominent British, pub- British publication, tells us that, quote, he was also willing to send in the boys to persuade peace protesters to stay home, end quote. So not only was this his first foray into politics and in persuading others on a large scale, but it seems... Uh, it was also his first taste of using, of using threats of violence, or actual violence, to put his fingers on the scale and help secure his aims. For this, he was paid £100 a week. The conversions aren't perfect because it's uh, in Italy, but that's roughly, roughly $11,000 a week in today's money. Why relate this information in pounds, you ask? because it was MI5 that hired him to do this. British intelligence, not wanting to lose Italy as a fighting ally in the war, were the ones who initially fanned the flames of the political fire underneath Mussolini that would eventually become a partisan firestorm. Would he have been the same person or eventually had the same influence upon his country and brother from another mother up north? Yeah, you know, probably... But who knows? History is weird, but this in no way helped the course of things. Huh, it can be sensed. Another anecdote is required. In 1938, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain made his now infamous trip to Hitler's Bavarian retreat, the Berghof, to, quote, secure peace in our time, end quote. Oops. While there, Adolf regaled Neville with a war story about he was at a battle at Main Crossroads in northern France in 1918, and Private Henry Tandy, the most decorated private soldier in the entire war for Great Britain, came across an unarmed Hitler, pointed his gun at him, but spared him, as he was without a weapon and harmless at the time. Quote, 
That man came so near to killing me that I thought I should never see Germany again. Providence saved me from such devilish accurate fire as those English boys were aiming at us. End quote. That's what Hitler was reported as saying to Chamberlain. He apparently even pointed out a painting on the wall of his study depicting a battle at Main Crossroads in 1914 with Private Tandy in the foreground. And it was later confirmed by the Museum of the Green Howards that it indeed hung on his wall and continued to until the end of the war. In 1940, a journalist approached Tandy outside of his, at the time, bombed Coventry home, and I believe showed him a photo of a younger Hitler, and then he asked him about this uh, alleged encounter. And uh, by the way, this was not the first time he was aware of what Hitler said or was asked about it, but he responded, quote, if only I had known what he would turn out to be, end quote. He, of course, wishes he had killed him. To be clear, the details are murky here, and much is disputed about the matter, especially concerning the dates and whereabouts of both parties. And you know, how would Hitler remember the look of the man who spared him and peg it to be this particular soldier? It seems he recognized him from this painting, but it's a painting and a memory from a stressful situation. And how would Tandy remember the look of one of the dozens of unarmed German soldiers he decided to not dispatch with near that crossroads? It doesn't matter in my mind. As crazy as this sounds, we should probably take Hitler's word for it that some British soldier at some point declined to shoot him while unarmed. To have this painting of the enemy in his study and share this somewhat humbling story with another head of state nonetheless strikes me as slightly odd for this egomaniac who is uber proud of his military service. Who shares that story unless something like that did unfold? One has to think it wasn't a random lie without any factual foundation, even if the specifics can't be confirmed today. The point is that not only were Hitler's and Mussolini's World War I warographies similar enough already, but it seems reasonably certain that Great Britain played a part in securing their future existence as war-hungry dictators, one via cushy cushy employment and the go-ahead to be a lying thug, the other through one of its soldiers not killing him when he easily could have. Please get it right. This is not my attempt to throw shade on Great Britain. Just to make you scratch your head and say, wait, what happened? History is weird. And for these two fucking bonkers. Speaking of bonkers, let's look further into Benito's post-World War I political story. Mussolini began improving at giving speeches and organizing energetic and appealing rallies. He certainly valued the theater of these events over any underlying truth or convincing philosophy within his speeches. He was relatively young, still had a strong, if not a bit stocky, physique, and knew how to use his body and loud voice to be a powerful orator. Does that sound familiar? His ardent supporters would wear black shirts at these events. These people in black shirts would essentially become fascist squads or militias that were loyal to him. They went by the creative name, the black shirts. That's just a name formed by a good old-fashioned inventive Italian artist right there. By 1920, these militias were rounding up socialists and happily burning down their union or party offices. 
Many people whom these fascists saw as being in the way were humiliated, beaten, or even killed. They had no qualms with attacking government institutions or basically anything they saw as leftist. This was a scary time for Italy in more ways than one, and Mussolini and his black shirts took advantage of the fear within the populace in more ways than one. Now would be the time to provide some proof of how Hitler's public speaking style was akin to Mussolini's in the way they used theater, gesticulated and yelled, abandoned the need for truth, preyed on people's fears, and incited hatred in others. However, this doesn't feel necessary. If you have decided to take in this podcast and are unaware of how Hitler gave speeches, that's what YouTube is for. Also, you probably don't exist. Either way, they were eerily similar in how they gave public speeches, how central it was to spread their message, and how it helped bring newcomers to their cause, seriously whirling them up along the way. Moving on, slightly. In 1922, there was talk of a general strike from what remained of the trade unions. In August of that year, fascists went out into the countryside and destroyed buildings occupied by socialists, among other fear tactics used. Mussolini said if the government didn't stop the strike, he would. At a massive rally, rally in October in Milan, he exclaimed, quote, either the government will be given to us or we will seize it by marching on Rome, end quote. It seemed he wasn't kidding around, and the now sizable followers of fascists in Rome started, quote-unquote, marching. However, it was sizable for a crowd, but not anything close to what one would think would be needed to essentially overthrow a government. Estimates put it at around 30,000 people. King Victor Emmanuel III probably felt trapped by the fascists. He also probably feared violence which seems like a total overreaction in retrospect, or at least he could have attempted to do something to stop it. But he ended up appointing Mussolini prime minister at the end of October, even though Mussolini stayed in Milan the whole time of this march. He was the youngest Italian to ever hold that position. Very quickly, he used his secret police to terrorize those he didn't like, outlawed labor strikes, and within five years, consolidated his power and, transform, and transformed Italy into a one-party dictatorship. By 1925, he became known as Il Duce, which simply translates to the leader. This isn't unlike Führer for Adolf, the title he would later take for himself. This word also translates to leader. These two men were just fountains of imagination. The similarities between the unfolding of these events and what the world would witness a few years later and just slightly farther north on the European continent is creepy. And now, we also enter the world of not just similarities between these two men and their movements, but an actual attempted reproduction of what Mussolini did by Hitler and the Nazis. This is the moment that something else begins. Mussolini, unwittingly for the moment, started paving a road of sorts that the Nazis, Nazis would learn from and follow. Getting to the destination may take longer for them, but we all know what eventually happens. Back to the stories. Prior to the Munich event in question, a couple of years before actually, in 1920, see everything moves slower it seems up north, the socialists in Bavaria had called for a general strike, just like what happened in Italy. This created a lot of political turmoil, vexation, and reconsidering for many, 
among numerous other events that aren't worth going into now. Just know that things got tumultuous and fluid politically. It was this absence of a strong government, the perceived void of respected power, and the factional fighting between socialists and others that the Nazis wanted to step into. One thing to note, it is known that in 1923, Hitler would write Mussolini about the March on Rome. He wrote about it in congratulatory terms. It is interesting that during the 20s, Mussolini wasn't impressed with Hitler at all. He claimed that Mein Kampf was boring and deemed Hitler's ideas coarse and simplistic. Those are quotes. That's not really important to the story. It's just interesting. So while we don't possess direct evidence that Hitler and the Nazis were 100% copying Mussolini and his march on Rome, we know that he wrote him to congratulate him on it. So he was impressed by it and the success it created. We know the march happened a year before the beer hall. We know that they had newspapers in Bavaria and could follow the progress in Italy. We know the Nazis liked the fascist ideas Benito espoused. I think it's safe to say what the Nazis would try to pull off was an attempt at their own recreation of what Benito pulled off. Hitler tried to do his own version of what Mussolini had done. I think that's clear. That's just me, though. So, what happened? It was Munich, 1923, and Hitler and his fellow Nazis were pissed off at the Bavarian government and essentially the whole state of things in the German-speaking world. They were good at continually expanding their horizons of things to be pissed off at. They wanted to topple their government, first the Bavarian one and then onwards to Berlin. And they wanted to do it now. Inspired by Mussolini and his approach, I'm sticking with that assertion, they decided to see if they could recreate it with Hitler being the movement's leader, figurehead, and necessary fiery speaker. But instead of kicking off this endeavor via a large public speech that would be communicated to very many all over his country with the backing, backing of tens of thousands of comrades placed within the capital city, the Nazis thought smaller, more local, and felt like alcohol was a necessary ingredient of this spectacle. Which is slightly amusing considering that Hitler basically didn't drink unless it was a small glass of wine with sugar added at special occasions and he considered drunkenness a deplorable state. Uh, he also hated cigarettes passionately. Um, this didn't make him uh, many friends in uh, 1930s and 40s Germany. Anyway, it seems that at this time, the Nazis were indelible fascists, while Mussolini was already signed to a major. So the Nazis, in their wisdom, chose a beer hall in Munich that could hold around 3,000 people to begin their coup attempt. But because it eventually wasn't successful, except to maybe gaining a few hundred supporters within the hall, it is known as the Munich Beer Hall Putsch. I think that's how you pronounce it. Munich Beer Hall Putsch, instead of the Munich Beer Hall Coup. It's also endlessly peculiar how they sat back and asked themselves, how can we topple our government after a passionate speech? That they came to the conclusion, drunks. Again, indie label act. Bavarian, no less. On November 8th, Hitler struck. The Nazis marched on said beer hall and seized both the police chief uh, that was there as well as three important politicians who were apparently putting a few back. Hitler ran in, shot his pistol into the air, and attempted to force these men to support his proclamation of a national revolution and called upon those listening to follow him to Berlin. 
again, a la the March on Rome. He also gave an energetic speech about how and why everyone else should follow him. He was able to effectively seize the beer hall and threaten these men because he had uh, his armed paramilitary group there with him, protecting the outside and inside of the beer hall. They were known as the SA, but are remembered for they're remembered more for the other name. Get this, the brown shirts. If you don't think they liked what they saw in Italy, I have nothing else for you. They seriously didn't even try to hide their copy of Mussolini. So his black shirts became the brown shirts. Just, just wow. Back to the beer hall. It was a lack of foresight to almost silly proportions. After those men made their proclamation to Hitler, at the end of a gun, they were allowed to leave without escort. Rookie move. As soon as they could, those men disowned him and what they had said and had Hitler arrested. He would soon thereafter be sentenced to five years in prison. However, he would serve only nine months in a plush prison within an old castle, replete with his own large room and access to a library and visitors. This is when and where he would write Mein Kampf. And while this beer hall putsch was a failure of the moment, it made Hitler and the Nazis international news. His prison, his prison sentence would give him the time and space to write his book, which translates to My Struggle, and this would eventually sell many millions of copies in Germany and become a central part of Nazi propaganda. History is weird. How different things could have gone if he had been forced to serve his complete sentence or not sent to such a congenial prison. Yet that's not how things shook out. Now it is time to glance at some of the other pre-World War II activities of this dictator, Mussolini, who thought he had created a novel and divine approach to government that relied on ruthless totalitarian rule and the active demise of your quote-unquote enemies. Again, I can't stop thinking about how laughable it is, how much this man believed he uncovered, uncovered some unexplored manner of government, and how much a diminutive mustachioed Austrian would also believe it. But hey, as J.K. Rowling penned, fear of a name increases fear of the thing itself. Yea, for fascism and all the fear that would be created towards that name. Strong sarcasm. Another almost uncanny similarity between these two men, or probably just more plagiarism that one would have of the other, can be seen in their proclaimed desired approaches to foreign policy. It soon became apparent that Mussolini's foreign policy relied heavily on the doctrine of spazio vitae, which translates to living space. He thought that Italians needed, and were unrighteously deprived of, more geography to live and thrive on. Wow. What a novel idea, never practiced before by a country or empire. Just fantastic stuff. Of course, one person apparently stunned by Benito's transcendent expansionary concept was Hitler, who would write in Mein Kampf that the Germans needed and were rightfully owed Liebenstrom. That word also translates to living space. See what I mean about plagiarism when you discuss these two? Regardless, Mussolini wanted to expand what was under his fascist rule and, if not put Italians into those lands, then at least exploit them for Italy and the power of his fascist rule. It is hard to express in anything less than a novella the amount of wickedness, murder, weirdness, and mistakes Mussolini made before World War II. 
There were also some successes, you know, through fascist eyes, and early on some impressive and miraculous achievements through the eyes of others who weren't living in Italy. So here are some of the aforementioned highlights. Now we will look at some of the boots on the ground, more military related events. We shall get to more similarities and influences related to thought, philosophy, and policies between the two men and movements afterward. There are many ways to peel this onion, but this feels best. Who knows if that's so, but I wanted to share that. Pressing ahead, Mussolini really wanted more of that living space mentioned before. As early as 1923, which truly is wild, he ordered the bombing and subsequent occupation of the Greek island of Corfu. He claimed this was in reaction to the killing of an Italian general, which did happen, but still remained an odd overreaction as there's no clear proof that the Greeks were involved. There was actually evidence that it could have been the Albanians. Either way, he risked much over the death of one man. Clearly, this was just an excuse to try to grab Corfu for himself. Interestingly, the League of, Nat the League of Nations intervened to settle the, the dispute, and Benito eventually gave in and couldn't expand Italy at all, at least not then. He couldn't get what he wanted and what he made such a stink over to the point of bombing his neighboring country. Again, he was risking so much in post-World War I Europe. Remember that, because Benito certainly did not. This was seen by the rest of the world as much ado about nothing, or at least much ado about a little thing. And Benito, for the moment, caved. That same year, as Mussolini's henchmen were gearing up to kidnap and kill the socialist deputy Matteotti, who was the best critic of fascism in Italy's parliament, Benito launched the second Italo-Sanusi War. That war took place in what is now Libya. This is a tumultuous and often ignored and forgotten piece of history. Italy had been in Libya since 1911, as they tried to expand and control what they saw as rightly part of their empire. Still, things really switched gears into something new in 1923 to 1932, when Mussolini had a say in things and started the nine-year war we now name the Italo-Sanusi War. You see, the Sanusi order were the central indigenous rebels within Libya, and the war is considered to have ended when their leader, Omar al-Mukhtar, was captured and killed. Of course, that unfortunately isn't where the monstrosities ended for this desert land south of the Italian peninsula. We will refrain from breaking down this conflict too much, but let's just say when you learn some of the specifics of it, you will be disgusted and fiercely wonder why, if you're like me, you've never been taught this information. Precise information from this war is a little hard to get. Both sides resorted to horrible manners of fighting that would leave the Red Cross paralyzed with disbelief, you know, had they been let in. It is estimated that between 83 thousand and 125,000 Libyans were killed by Italian colonial authorities under Mussolini, who you know laughably so was against colonies earlier in his career, but many more were displaced. The historian Ilian Pape gives us an estimate. He believed that the Italian military killed half the Bedouin population in question. 
This was done either directly in military confrontation or by disease, starvation, and get ready for this, through their imprisonment in concentration camps. You heard that right, concentration camps. After this war, the Italians started to send their people into what is now called Libya. It is estimated that Mussolini sent 150,000 countrymen to settle the land. Mussolini asserted that this was not just a civilizing mission by the Italians, which of course is a prominent argument of colonialists. He claimed that since the Italians were heirs to the Romans, they had a right to govern and influence the Mediterranean. It's interesting to point out that Hitler has not been the only one to espouse this odd logic of Mussolini. His convenient misreading of history and the wacky rights it bestows upon one, it still exists. Benito was undoubtedly not the first person to justify creating a conquering and militaristic present and future through what happened in the distant past, and he won't be the last. That lamentable manner of thinking has not left us. Again, Putin seems to be a big fan of this logic, but that's a podcast for another time. All right, let's touch on the jolting CC phrase just used, concentration camps. While one shouldn't let their mind jump to the images and realities that this phrase conjures up for us, those of the realities of the Holocaust brought on by the Nazis, it isn't horribly far off from that. Here's what we're comfortable saying happened. The Italians erected some 300 plus miles of fencing along the Egyptian border to cut off the Libyans from resources. After that, it is estimated that between 100,000 and 110,000 children, women, and elderly people and interestingly, 600,000 animals were moved to concentration camps in the Sirte Desert. 16 concentration camps in the end were built, and tens of thousands eventually perished due to having to live in these camps. I know, I know. I said this episode wouldn't be as depressing as the previous ones. But you see, I learned uh, about a lot of this while creating this episode. And I still find a bit of solace in the fact that this is a subject in the history books, as opposed to a subject happening at this very moment. I hope you do too, but it sometimes can feel like a stretch. Yet, I feel justified in relating this information pricely because I never knew it before. And I bet you didn't either, not to this extent. This has happened for reasons one in the Western world could surmise and unknown reasons as well. So, for a moment, let's examine one reason why this information has been quasi-forgotten, quasi-undiscussed. In his book from 2020, Genocide in Libya, Shar, A Hidden Colonial History, Ali Abdulatif Ahmida addresses much about this issue. Ali is a Libyan-American scholar who has studied and recorded much of the oral history of the Libyan people because very little of it has been written down in any quote-unquote official manner. While not perfect, this puts him in an excellent position to reveal much of what happened and what has been hidden from the average Westerner. Ali puts forward a good argument that Mussolini's instructions basically resulted in a deliberate policy of mass killing and organized famine to extinguish an entire people and culture. After this was a campaign to erase the historical records so that news about the quasi-genocide would not reach the wider world it seems they were careful to destroy much of the material and historical evidence related to the camps they created and the despicable movement of so many Italians into Libya as they sought to develop La Quarta Sponda di Italia, or the fourth shore of Italy. This, in part, 
is why not much is known or talked about today regarding the Italian fascists moving and killing some 800,000 plus Libyans. Step back and think about that for a moment. Outside of one having some clinical mental issues, people rarely do things they believe are wrong or immoral. This is even more true for groups of people. It can be hard to wrap one's mind around, but usually when people do something, even something that all other people would consider immoral or just plain obviously wrong, the person committing the act does not think it is wrong, even if the act is needless violence. Usually, people believe what they are doing is correct and justified somehow, no matter how twisted what they're actually doing is. It is very irregular for adult humans to do something and actively understand it is wrong, again, outside of having a broken mind. To learn that the Italians destroyed records and historical evidence, as well as suppressed news of their actions, is really infuriating. It is also confusing. How were so many people convinced to do this? Yet this destroying of records does explain our amnesia of these events a bit and almost makes you hope that Mussolini was sick in the head because the other options, the other option means you're dealing with an absolute monster of a human. I'm not saying he wasn't that, but uh, it's, it's just all confusing. But yet it was a large group of people who he was, who he was able to get to participate in this. And this wasn't normal behavior, even for people at war. They didn't know if they could get away with it or if it would work at all, if they, you know, if it would work at all, that they could treat others, mainly civilians, in this depraved manner. So they experimented. They did their best to hide it and experimented with ways of hiding it. Again, it's all perplexing, to say the least. But Benito did not hide what he was doing from everyone. Would you like to know with whom the Italians were eager to share what they had done and what they had learned within Libya? give up? Oh, sadly, I'm pretty sure you have guessed correctly. While there was much destruction of records, some did sneak through, notably Italian-sponsored Arabic-language newspapers and publications from the time. From them, we know that in April 1939, in an official visit to Tripoli, Field Marshal Hermann Goring or Goering, um, met with the Italian colonial governor general of Libya, Italo Balbo. That is correct. The Italian fascists wanted to show their Nazi fascist friends precisely what they had done. Italo Balbo succeeded a man named Pietro Badoglio. He was the architect behind the original plan to put people in concentration camps so as to erase their lives and culture, making room for people who quote-unquote mattered. doesn't stop with Gehring either. Heinrich Himmler, the infamous chief, uh, chief, the infamous, yes, the infamous chief of the SS, also visited Libya in 1939 and saw firsthand the results of what Mussolini had done. Himmler, in case you were not aware, was the one who went on to set up the Nazi extermination camps, camps, and conceived of the idea of the quote-unquote final solution, which is what we now call the Holocaust. And to put an evil cherry atop the depraved Sunday, we also know that Italo Balbo went to visit Adolf Hitler himself in 1938 in Germany. These field visits and constant communication between the two countries' political elites were followed by books, conferences, and seminars. The Italian colonial experience in Libya and Ethiopia, more on that soon, was known 
studied, and it seems celebrated in Germany prior to the outbreak of World War II and the Holocaust. You do not have to buy into Ali's total deconstruction of Eurocentric scholarship about this period, in which Italy carried out something that was sort of fascist light compared to what the Nazis afterward did, to connect the dots of this disturbing pattern. We know what the Italians did in Libya and Ethiopia, we know the Nazis studied it, and we know what the Germans eventually did. It's as if Hitler saw what Mussolini had done in Africa, contemplated with a smile, and said to the world, hold my beer. Excuse the humor. It just can just be hard to learn these things. All right. Now let's turn to another endeavor Mussolini went on before the big one started. His frightful exploits in Ethiopia, in Ethiopia that have been previously hinted at. The first thing to understand is that this wasn't Italy's first time in Ethiopia. At the end of the 19th century, essentially all of Africa was controlled by European countries. The only independent countries were Ethiopia and Liberia. Italy wanted to expand its African empire, which was much smaller than other European empires. They were jealous and embarrassed by this fact, one imagines. They wanted to extend their presence in the Horn of Africa. In March of 1896, the Italian forces invaded Ethiopia near the town of Adwa. The Italians thought they'd roll over the Ethiopians, yet they were decisively beaten to the point where they left the country alone afterwards. They left the country alone afterwards. Sure, the Ethiopians outnumbered the Italians significantly, but a defeat of, the, of a European country by natives in Africa was extremely rare, no matter what the numbers were. Italy intensely felt shame because of this and never forgot the quote-unquote insult, even though they were the invaders. So, in addition to wanting to expand their empire in Africa, Mussolini, even though it was 40 years later and he had no personal memory of the event, felt he had a score to settle for his country. And again, I have to point out that Putin would love logic such as this, you know, in addition to the other sicko this episode centers around. So, in all of his woeful wisdom, Benito decided to invade Ethiopia in 1935. The war would officially end in 1937, and uh, this time they successfully subjugated the locals. However, that doesn't mean everything went to plan, and there were kinetic attacks and killings for a couple of years after that. It wasn't all for revenge for Adwa either. The Great Depression hit Italy hard, and old Benny Boy, as I like to imagine him being called by his colleagues behind his back, he believed controlling Ethiopia's vast resources and opening a new market for Italian goods would help the economic woes at home. Additionally, he felt that annexing this land would solidify their African empire into one larger entity, thereby making modern Italy into something more resembling the Roman Empire of old, which he irrationally reasoned was their God-given privilege. He also wanted to give his people some kind of rallying point that would solidify support for the fascist regime. It was a corrupted culmination of many considerations on his part. What Mussolini ended up doing to the Ethiopians was macabre. It's tough to read and write about because of how vile and heartbreaking it was and because, you know, yet again, I had no prior knowledge of it and no many others do not as well. That last point is infuriating indeed, not only for the Ethiopians, but also because this conflict influenced world history god-awfully. To keep things straightforward, we shall explore some of the main points from this war instead of diving full into it and getting too distracted or depressed. No, I, I say that now. 
While we can't know for sure, the estimates concerning the number of Ethiopians that died at the hands of the Italians at Benito's orders are around 250,000 people by 1938, out of an estimated population of 12 million. The Italians claim they had about 3,000 casualties in this war, um, which doesn't mean killed as those injured or missing in action are also casualties. However, Today, that's considered an underestimation for political purposes, and their numbers were probably around uh, 8,000 casualties, but still, that's a massive discrepancy. Even more startling than the number of people killed is the manner in which many of them died. With Mussolini's permission and oversight, the Italians combined old-school savagery with new-school technologies to rain terror upon the people of Ethiopia. That word is used on purpose, as they literally drop terror from the skies in ways worse than bombs. We also know that the Italian troops would often destroy civilian living spaces to look for combatants and, let's face it, to just instill dread in the populace. They fancied themselves as superior, cultured individuals facing people who were, quote, indignant and vindicatory, uncivil and barbarians, end quote. Old batshit Benito felt this supremacy of civilization and race entitled him and his forces to be as immoral and benighted in his quest for conquest over innocent people far from his home. It is intolerably ironic how, throughout history, those who, feel, those who feel better than others think it is okay to act worse than them to prove the point. The Italians will go on to use decapitations, castrations, and burning of civilian living spaces to accomplish their goals. Um, it should be noted that Ethiopians also use similar terror tactics in a few cases, but one can at least comprehend that as a response to what the invaders did. Of course, they didn't have a chance of actually responding in kind. They didn't have the technology, weapons, or calamitous creativity to even imagine the tactics used upon them. Mussolini and his soldiers had such things. They went on to use aerial gas bombings and open grave executions. In case you don't know what that is, it's where a large hole would be created in the ground and then people would be shot to then fall into the grave, which would then be plowed over with soil to hide what had happened and to just be more efficient. There are some horrendous stories from this war, such as when in one day, in one battle, it is estimated that the Italians killed over 30,000 people, which were probably mostly women and children. It is remembered as the Adias Ababa Massacre. The 1925 Geneva Protocol clearly bans the use of all chemical weapons, mustard gas included. Italy signed it. Mussolini himself signed the fucking thing. In Ethiopia, they decided they did not care about such promises. They were too sophisticated and too white to be beholden such promises in Africa and dropped mustard gas on their quote-unquote enemy, in tremendous amounts. Between 1935 and 1939, they shipped 617 tons of this hellacious weapon to Ethiopia. Mustard gas is what's called a blister agent. It causes severe and immediate skin, eye, and respiratory issues. It literally blisters these parts of one's body just by casual contact in the air. It hangs close to the ground as well, increasing its, increasing its efficacy. Without a gas mask, one will suffocate if substantially exposed. With a gas mask, you can still be damaged. There is a good chance that if you survive, you'll have devastating long-term effects such as respiratory issues and a highly increased chance of certain cancers, among other things. 
My great-grandfather encountered mustard gas in World War I. It was a non-lethal exposure, technically. From that day on, though, he had consistent GI problems, was unnaturally skinny, and was just always sick. He had to eat, he had to eat extremely bland foods for the rest of his life or otherwise would pay the price of intense bathroom-centric pains. He died from this at the age of 52. He never met his son's wife, my grandmother, let alone his grandchild, my father. Mustard gas killed him some 25 years after the war ended. His story was not uncommon. Let's put it this way. Hitler was so terrified and disgusted by what he witnessed of mustard gas as a soldier in World War I that he forbade his troops from using it in World War II. Goddamn Hitler was against it. It was too cruel a weapon for the dude who decided to cosplay the Prince of Darkness. Think about that. Benito had no such misgivings and dropped it on the Ethiopian civilians from his airplanes, knowing the effects and knowing that the people couldn't defend themselves. He declared his eventual vicious victory, quote, the most gigantic spectacle in the history of mankind, end quote. He thought that was a positive thing. With Italian media outlets twisting the truth behind the reasons for the war and how it was conducted, Mussolini rose to a new level of popularity at home and gained acclaim within Italy. He also felt, in some manner of thought that is unfollowable, that it avenged Italy's mistreatment by the stronger European powers that occurred at the close of World War I. For entering into this war, the League of Nations tried to send a message and enforce sanctions on Italy that obviously did little to abate Benito and gang. He was vehemently upset by this and played the victim card with the dominant powers being the actual bad guys in his mind and words. As he put it, in Ethiopia, Italy, Italy was attempting to, quote, bring civilization to backward lands, build roads and schools, and diffuse the hygiene and progress of our time, end quote. This is why history is stranger than and crueler than fiction. He actually related it to bringing hygiene to a foreign, independent country while concurrently dropping mustard gas on their people. A true, baneful bitch, that one. What's complicated about this is that we are all taught and conditioned to the story of evil surrounding Hitler and the Nazis. It is part of our present-day zeitgeist. It is so wicked, so implanted in us via the media, history classes, etc., that it is almost dreamlike to think about. We've made it so black and white, so abnormal, that we unwittingly have kind of dehumanized and decontextualized what happened. It's almost like we say, yeah, Hitler was the devil. The devil does evil stuff. What else could be expected? But then you study Mussolini and this period, this man and his effects, that it blindsides you somehow. You've no conditioning for these facts. It is quite, uh, it's uniquely unsettling. Why isn't this in the zeitgeist? Do you mean he wasn't that unusual at the time in his place? We also somehow do this with the Japanese to an extent. However, that story isn't unknown as much as it just feels farther away from us in some ineffable way. Consider this. It took until 1995 for the Italian government and former combatants to admit that they used chemical weapons in, in East Africa for generations. Much was not admitted to or spoken about concerning the time of Mussolini and his people leading up to World War II. 
The slaughter in Libya and Ethiopia and how it was achieved conflicted with this collective memory we have of Italy during this time so much that even those who were there couldn't bring themselves to correctly remember what occurred. And I am not sure it is so easy to say they and or us were lying. We've somehow brushed this under the communal rug. Sure, the Italians worked hard to keep a lot of this from public view then and well into the future. But I think this goes further than that. Others have done the same for them as well, probably unknowingly most of the time. It fucks with our understanding of ourselves to think that Hitler, the historical boogeyman of modernity, was following a playbook from someone else. Someone without a world-class industrial powerhouse at their back. Someone not armed with fierce new technologies. Someone not fed by a populous people with a knack for efficiency and a strong work ethic. Maybe it could have been stopped. It seems like it could have been at least slightly contained. And, you know, we don't like such introspections. Hitler wasn't cosplaying as the Prince of Darkness in his mind. He felt he was doing right by his people, who were superior, and he was justified in doing anything in support of that feeling. It's nauseating, but that's what happened. But his ideas weren't all his own, especially at first and regarding what he would say publicly. He had already seen another do similar actions in support of his people and seemingly not be condemned. Why couldn't he? He must have had such thoughts. I apologize, but it doesn't end there. Let us now look at what we know about Benito's philosophy and non-military actions and how they affected the Nazis. Again, covering everything isn't necessary, possible, or productive. So let's look at some of the main points, especially regarding race. First thing, the first thing to acknowledge is that a large part of the reason behind this episode is to shine light upon the overlooked relationship between these two men and how Hitler Again, history's ultimate boogeyman, he wasn't alone or the first in his path of hellish destruction. When we examine this, I feel it challenges our our understanding of our collective narrative and capabilities. That is uncomfortable but beneficial. However, Mussolini and Hitler, they weren't lockstep with each other. Adolf didn't follow the path Benito laid out completely, not 100%, and this needs to be pointed out. Also, as World War II neared, Hitler began to have more influence on Mussolini as opposed to the other way around. One must also remember these men were ardent nationalists, and what they felt was best for their country or their race in their minds, that came first. It's also intriguing, um, and kind of even slightly humorous, to see where they disagreed. You'll see. What is interesting to point out is that in terms of race and right of conquest, Mussolini did not harp on their relationship between race and conquest nearly as much as Hitler did over the entire pre-World War II period. Hitler was always obsessed with this topic in a way Mussolini was not. Don't misunderstand. Mussolini did have some strong opinions on race. He felt that the European civilizations were the most advanced and developed in the world, giving them the right to expand and subjugate others. He didn't get as severe and specific in these sentiments as Hitler did, though. But what Hitler personally felt was different than what the Nazis thought they could actually get away with 
when they were starting to grow their brand in Germany. This is where Benito probably influenced them the most, showing them what kind of international pushback might be expected. Mussolini enacted laws for his troops in Ethiopia. Um, I think they were the same in Libya also. That they were to stay separate from the locals and were prohibited from de developing personal relationships or just even having sex with the Ethiopians. This was essentially made illegal for the Italians as it was seen as debasing themselves. And by the way, there was very little success with these rules. He also considered the Slavs, notably nearby in the Balkans, as somehow being inferior whites and had no problem in desiring to take their land. But race was not central to his conception of fascism or Italian nationalism in such a specific manner, as long as people were white Europeans, quote unquote, civilized, and they followed his moral code, you know, outside of the Slavs for some reason. And while he pro pro proclaimed that Italians were a superior people, he also gave himself a lot of wiggle room on the subject over the years. He allowed himself to be amorphous and change his decrees and speeches about race depending upon the year, who he was talking to, or just probably how he felt. Um, he clearly did not mind contradicting himself. It happened all the time. However, there was an important aspect of Italian fascism that Benito stressed before the Nazis did. Um, and while different than the Nazi philosophy, uh, it appears quite similar and seems to have an impact on the, uh, on the route his Hun homeboy would eventually take. Mussolini promoted the idea of a quote-unquote new man as a response to what he felt was the demographic and moral decline of his people, uh, especially compared to other non-white groups in Italy's vicinity. He envisioned a new social order in which the Italian people would essentially become a warrior society that was hierarchical and racially pure. He felt that humans of different races were not equals and that therefore their rights should not be equal. This would include those within Italy as well as without. It presumed the result for the collective was more important than, any, than anything that happened to individuals in improving the collective. It's funny how much his enemy, Stalin, would probably agree with that last point. Those who Benito felt were socially degenerate and could not be a quote-unquote new man included homosexuals, career criminals, alcoholics, the mentally ill, beggars, gypsies, and ethnic minorities such as Slavs. Um, and later on, Jews. But I have to stress, that wouldn't happen for some time, actually. Mussolini publicly stated the aims of organizing in this brutal way were an overarching goal of constructing a society directed towards war and territorial expansion. Italy would have to pursue a, quote, war of existence, end quote, against other people to conquer and expand their deserved, quote unquote, living space. Mussolini began asserting ideas like this in the 1920s, pretty quickly after gaining complete control of the government. An important moment in this regard was his Ascension Day speech on May 26, uh, 1927, in which he made numerous announcements concerning race and demographics. This made quite a stir internationally. The New York Times published the entire speech. While his views on such matters became known worldwide at the time, they significantly affected those within the Weimar Republic, and that's Germany's government at the time. 
Apparently, the German population became very interested in Italy's views on supporting and enlarging the demographics of a pure and superior race, cleaning themselves of undesirables, and then expanding their living space with war if necessary. I'm going to quote an absorbing and lengthy research paper from Patrick Bernhard from the Department of Archaeology, Conservation, and History at the University of Oslo. The paper is titled, Blueprints of Totalitarianism, How Racist Policies in Fascist Italy Inspired and Informed Nazi Germany. Uh, You can find a link to it in the references at the end of this, uh, the end of my writing for this episode on my website. It'll be the link from Brill.com. It's really fascinating and goes in depth if you want to learn more about this. Um, Okay, quote. As Hitler's statements in public speeches and private conversation reveal, the Nazis relied on Italian fascism to project their own vision of a future German Volksgemeinschaft, or National Socialist Community. This vision of a new, harmonious society was based, just like Mussolini's notion of the new man, on racist, anti-democratic, and nationalist ideas. Between the 1920s and the early 1940s, Hitler often praised the exemplary manner in which Mussolini combated his political enemies and the Jews. His praise for Mussolini was a consistent element in his thinking. End quote. The critical takeaway from that quote is that the Nazis used the Italian philosophy and their success to project their own visions of a future Germany. Benito didn't give the Nazis their ideas, but in some weird way, he gave them permission to pursue them aggressively. And while I believe Mussolini when he spoke about the new man and revitalizing the Roman Empire, from doing all this research, it is also apparent that he didn't feel this issue in the manner that the Nazis did. He switched his opinions often. And he didn't include Jews until the Nazis had the upper hand in terms of power. And outside of his horrible exploits in Africa, he did not pursue many tactics at home in service of these ideas. Don't get me wrong. He is in no way let off the hook. He was a deplorable human and acted so. But I think for this issue specifically, he helped to create a monster that was much worse than himself. History is weird. This weirdness can also be shown in some of the opinions Benito expressed during this time, which showcases his inconsistencies of thought and his differences with the Nazis. One was about the Aryan race, which he did not find to be a race at all. You know, and he probably had a point, oddly enough. In 1934, he said this, quote, But which race? Does there exist a German race? Has it ever existed? Will it ever exist? Reality, myth, or hoax of the theorists? Ah, well, we respond, a Germanic race does not exist. Various movements, curiosity, stupor, we repeat, does not exist. We don't say so. Scientists say so. Hitler says so. End quote. It's a very uh, odd um, diarrhea of the mouth there, but I think you get the point. He also wasn't so keen on this Nazi idea of themselves being a master race. Of course, he relied on his obsession with ancient history when he said in a 1933 speech, quote, 30 centuries of history allow us to look with supreme pity on certain doctrines which are preached beyond the Alps by the descendants of those who were illiterate when Rome had Caesar, Virgil, and Augustus, end quote. Um, In case you didn't follow, 
That's him taking pity on the Germans because 2,000 years ago, Rome was thriving when the Germans were illiterate. It is also interesting that in 1943, Mussolini regretted the Manifesto of Race, which he apparently agreed to in 1938 just to enhance his relationship with Germany. He said he was far from accepting Rosenberg's myth on the issue. Rosenberg was a a rabid anti-Semite who... Uh, wrote the Manifesto of Race. He he vacillated a lot on this topic, but yet his influence was undoubtedly for the uber-worse over time, regardless of his personal opinions or what he said when it was way too late. This is not the only aspect of the philosophical influence of Mussolini on the Nazis that we can examine. It is probably the most important, though, as it is what we think of first, usually when we examine the atrocities the Nazis would commit. Um, picking apart other types of um, philosophical influence just doesn't feel necessary. I think good enough evidence has been put forward to showcase the influence exerted by the Italians on the Germans of Mussolini onto the Nazis. It's an influence we shall now always be affected by. Um, It was an influence that maybe could have been reduced, if not stopped by other nations, other people, had they had the will or foresight. But Mussolini showed the Nazis that, hey, you can talk like this, you can act like this, and um, no one's going to stop you, Um, at least not until they're ready to put a really big fight behind it. In conclusion, there is no specific single goal related to how one should interact with their understanding of the past from this episode. It goes without saying that there should not be a negative altering to how one thinks about Italians or Germans, just potentially a rethinking about one particular Italian and one particular German and their relationship with each other, each other's political parties, and their relationship between their actions and the rest of the world. My research into this subject undoubtedly has led me to the belief that Mussolini had an outsized and questionably undiscussed influence on what Hitler and Nazism would become and do to Europe and the world. Maybe you come away with a completely different reading of history. That's more than acceptable. But the true hope is that now you'll be aware of the actual historical realities of this time which most people do not possess through no fault of their own. And then you can come to whatever conclusion you'd like. This non-possession of the historical realities of this time, a time so often examined and very important to the collective human narrative, eats at me. Why aren't Libya, Ethiopia, concentration camps, and mustard gas, name a few, why aren't they commonly known or taught? I am not sure what the conclusion should be in terms of this. It seems to probably related to a few factors. One is the fact that Nazis would do such horrific, world-shattering things to all around them 
while in the process of taking over most of Europe, that they, of course, would be the focus of anyone looking backwards. But I think there is also an aversion to exploring the stories we just went over, whether consciously or not. I think that's a dangerous error. When we look at the events of these years, we somehow gain solace by telling ourselves that Hitler and the Nazis were serious, seriously atypical anomalous demons. We do this to such an extent that we believe nothing like them came before or can come again. But we've just seen that something like them came just a few years before and from not very far away. This challenges us in a way we don't desire. The simple black and white World War II movie with good guys and bad guys becomes more confusing. It takes on colors never seen before. The comforting simplicity is ruined. A new nuance is introduced. We aren't prepared for it and we don't enjoy it. It suggests that the manner in which history unfolded could have gone differently. Maybe it could have even been outright stopped. Things didn't have to go like they did. Perhaps we, those from the world who would become the allies, could have done something to improve the course of history. Maybe the true horrors of World War II did not have to occur. Maybe we're at fault also. You come to your own conclusions. But that's why I think this subject is worth exploring in detail. Also, I just believe visiting interesting, unrecognized, or consequential stories from history as an inherent and undefinable value all of its own. I would like to end with one thought, though. As said in the introduction, as Mark Twain supposedly expressed, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mussolini and Hitler were not aliens. They were humans. And something like what they created could happen again. Other humans in other nations did not act quick enough enough to stop them, especially Mussolini, when they could have. Just remember that when you see such people as Putin and co. using twisted, vile, illogical reasoning to invade, slaughter, and try to conquer their neighbor because people there speak Russian or were once under Moscow's rule, or have resources that properly belong to Russia, more so than the natives. Sure, it might technically not be your responsibility to try and stop such things when you're an ocean away, but what happened when it's allowed to transpire? Who could Putin be inspiring to do the same? Or worse, should he get away with it? What escalation of atrocities and geographies could be next? What can history tell us about what could happen now? I don't know where the line is, and I am not advocating that countries become involved in any foreign conflict or issue they deem immoral. Still, it is clear that history shows us, the story of Mussolini and Hitler shows us, that often not intervening in the horrors of a leader's or country's actions, even when they don't directly affect you, can guarantee Another one much worse will learn from that and create a scenario that will affect you, or maybe even affect everyone, just as Hitler did. The lessons of history are not perfect teachers for the present moment or for the future, but lessons are always in there nonetheless. Lessons are real. History is weird.